Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Last month, President Biden's White House announced it had conducted listening sessions on tech platform accountability, issuing a statement of principles around six key areas of concern, including competition, privacy, youth mental health, mis- and disinformation, illegal and abusive conduct to include sexual exploitation, and algorithmic discrimination and transparency. At the table for those discussions were influential individuals such as Susan Rice, who is assistant to the president and domestic policy advisor, Alondra Nelson, Deputy Assistant to the President and Head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, Mitchell Baker, the CEO of the Mozilla Corporation and Chairwoman of the Mozilla Foundation, and District of Columbia Attorney General Carl Racine. My guest today, Danielle Citron, was also on that short list as she is well established as an expert on questions in law and technology and how to combat online abuse and to protect intimate privacy. And I'm very pleased she is also a member of the Tech Policy Press masthead. Here she is. So I'm Danielle Citron. I'm a law professor at UVA School of Law. My official title is the Jefferson Scholars Foundation Schenck Distinguished Professor in Law and the Catalan Chapman Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm also the director of the Law Tech Center. It's our sort of new initiative here at the law school, and I'm the vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Tell the listener just a little bit about the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative if they haven't heard of it. Of course, we've had uh, Marianne Franks on this podcast in past, but for today's listener. Yes, of course, Marianne. You know, Dr. Franks is our the president and one of our co-founders of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. And we were founded in... Uh, in 2013. And the the principal goal at the time was to combat what we were then and continue to call non-consensual pornography. So a particular type of intimate privacy violation. Our founder, Holly Jacobs, had been wrestling um, since 2009, 2010 with an ex who had basically smeared the internet and her Google CV with nude images and um, videos of her engaged in sex acts all over the internet. And she was a a graduate student at the time. And some of those videos had her former last name, which was quite distinct with the suggestion that she was available for sex and that she was sleeping with her students. And Marianne and I started talking to Holly in 2009, 2010, when she was first experiencing it. And she said, you know, what do I do? And we realized at the time, of course, there wasn't an, a, a law that would ban non-consensual pornography in the state. That was true of, of nearly every state in the United States. There were only three states that banned into any form of intimate privacy violation that involved the non-disclosure of intimate images. And so when Holly got ready to start talking publicly about her story after she had changed her name to a quite generic name, one that she shared with a popular author, so that she would get hidden. That as her former life would recede and she would take on this new quite generic life, she sort of declared bankruptcy on that old self. Unfortunately, she felt forced to and her dean at her at her school asked her to. We founded an organization to combat what we conceived of and understood as a civil rights violation. So I'd written an article called Cyber Civil Rights, and we decided as a group, like, let's call the organization that. Because it wasn't just going to be about combating non-consensual pornography. It was going to be about the recognition that the exploitation of one's personal life online could be used to drive you offline. And so often who we would be driving offline and making disempowering not only of their voices, but their economic opportunities would be women and minorities. So we started this organization to combat non-consensual intimate imagery. We've expanded our work. So we, we begin in 2013. And no doubt, Dr. Franks was wrote the first sort of model statute. And she posted it on our blog at Concurring Opinions. And we wrote a law review article called Criminalizing Revenge Porn in 2014. And we started the project of changing the law. First, changing hearts and minds, because everyone wanted to call it revenge pornography, which in some sense blamed the victim. It was revenge and it was your fault. And we felt, A, we had to pivot and change how we thought about it. At the time, we wanted to talk about it as an intimate privacy violation, or surely I did. But we knew we had to frame it in a way that lawmakers would understand it. 
So we began calling it non-consensual pornography. We founded the organization together to change the laws around the country. And we've done a bang up job, I have to say. You know, How um, many states so far? 48 states, the District of Columbia, and two territories now ban the practice. Now, so Marianne crafted a brilliantly narrowly designed law that as we started working state for state, you know, with lawmakers, this was our our first experience was with Maryland. And Senator John Cardin and I, Marianne, and I agreed that I would work with, because I was there on the ground, I'd work with the Maryland ACLU. And together we draft a law together that we would take Marianne statute and then we would like kind of come together and compromise. And the Maryland ACLU agreed that if we succeeded, if what came out of committee was the law that we, our input, right? What we had drafted together, that the ACLU, my partner would stand down and that I would go and testify on behalf of the bill in Annapolis. It comes out of committee broken, both too narrow and too broad because, you know, the folks, unfortunately, on the committee, they weren't lawyers. And they didn't understand that we had worked so hard <laughs> to craft a bill that would pass strict scrutiny, that would that we could stand behind, that we felt really comfortable with, that we thought narrowly targeted invasions of intimate privacy that weren't newsworthy, that weren't, you know, but that was capacious enough to get at the practice. So unfortunately, the bill passes, right? That's always the story. The bill passes. It's a misdemeanor. And I don't testify on its behalf. And Tony Holness, my partner, testifies against it. So in a way, we have this like auspicious, weird start. But what has been really rewarding is to see that the hard work that Dr. Franks has done with lawmakers, state for state, legislature for legislature, testifying, you know, we have seen bills that we feel really good about, particularly the Illinois statute. And every bill that we've worked on, the ones that have gone up to their state's highest courts and been challenged, constitutionally challenged, they've survived strict scrutiny and come out the other side. So, and that's true of five states. So, so we're feeling good about the work that we've done, but we've expanded it. It's not just, you know, our organization fights for the civil rights and liberties of all. We want to create opportunity online and we fight against abuse that deters people from enjoying all those opportunities. That story and that trajectory is a great way to kind of anchor, uh, you know, how you've got into these issues and uh, where you're coming from. And also, I think your influence uh, over uh, these discussions, particularly in the United States, 17 years working on privacy issues. Uh, this is your second book. The first one, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, very renowned. And I'm sure uh, you've en- enjoyed uh, speaking opportunities on its back for, for many years. But now the fight for privacy, protecting dignity, identity, and love in the digital age. In the intro, you take us back all the way to 1890, um, Samuel Warren, Louis Brandis. Why do you start there? Right. Because the story of privacy in the United States, I could have began with kind of um, in the 1770s when, you know, we start protecting postal privacy and we start thinking about banning eavesdropping, which was then think about practices of the 1780s and 90s, you know, the the eavesdropping in someone's house, listening under the eaves, right? We, we, we could have started there, of course. But Warren and Brandeis write this magnificent article called The Right to Privacy that calls for a right that recognizes that each and every one of us has to draw boundaries around our domestic life. And I'm going to use kind of the way they frame it, right? That the sacred precincts, I'm quoting them, around our domestic lives um, should be ours. That what's, they say, what's whispered in the closets shouldn't be proclaimed from the rooftops. And they were writing in response to the emergence of the penny press, combined with the called detective snap cameras, you know, Kodak's first cheaper version of a camera that we can easily sort of bring with us and take pictures on the streets of the everyday person. And what they were were responding to to were concerns that the penny press was splashing stories about people's private lives, the details, I'm quoting them, of their sexual lives on the front pages in ways that were unwanted, that exposed the inviolate personality to inspection that no one desired, that not only were individuals harmed, they argued, but society was belittled. What mattered was perverted, right? And that you know, that what they wanted to do was create a carve out a tort, a privacy tort that would enable 
people to sue. And they said, listen, this isn't so unusual. They said, this tort grows out of a long history of the right to one's inviolate personality, to be free from assault, to be free from battery, to protect your intellectual property. They argued that that was a part of the right to personality and that a recognition of this new tort wasn't something crazy, right? It was consistent with the, the way the common law moved and developed and that it was the next right move. The reason why I focus on Warren and Brandeis is because their story is a story of intimate privacy. It's a story about the importance of privacy around our bodies, our health, our homes, our innermost thoughts and feelings, their emotions, our closest relationships. And so at the heart of my book is a story about why intimate privacy is a foundational right. It's a moral right. In my view, it's a, it ought to be understood as a human and civil right. And it begins truly with the magnificent article of Warren and Brandeis and the backstory. So often we misunderstand why Warren and Brandeis write their article and historians have written about the Warren family. And Samuel Warren had a, a gay brother who was living with his partner named John Marshall, but not the John Marshall, but and living in Oxford with other men. And his brother, Ned, was a prolific letter writer. And he shared his interests, his love of Greek art, often like nude art of nude men. And Sam Warren was worried for his brother's sake, right, that his letters would be shared without permission, that his homosexuality would be disclosed at a time where not only it was stigmatized, but in England, he lived in Oxford, was criminalized. And of course, and let's not kid ourselves, he also had his own concerns for his own social identity, right? The Warren family name. They, they lived in Mount Vernon and in Boston. It was quite fancy, right? They ran all the art. They were very involved in the art world and a distinguished law firm partner. And of course, his social esteem, that his reputation also, he was concerned about you know, his family's name and reputation. So the story of intimate privacy, I begin with Warren and Brandeis because the story that I'm telling is one of a foundational privacy value that has everything to do with the dignity of our personal and intimate and love lives right? That is, Ned Warren deserved intimate privacy. His brother so enlisted the law partner to write this famous law review article. And it began protection, legal protection and tort that I think we ought to, we can draw from, that we can learn from. Yet here we are uh, 130 odd years later, uh, and you say that the denial of intimate privacy amounts to a massive legal, social, and moral failing. You point to the in entrenchment of the notion that the bodies of women and minorities are not your own. And you say we are still struggling for a common language for how we think about the freedoms that intimate privacy enables. Right. Law, law can be, it can develop in ways that are quite stunted. And, you know, certainly the, the promise of the inviolate personality, the right to privacy that Warren and Brandeis fought for, um, developed in fits and starts, but was recognized over time, but sometimes gets co-opted by the own, the forms. And so Prosser kind of reduced, and this is in 1960, reduces the privacy torts to four quite narrow torts that meet some of our problems of the digital age, but not all of them, right? The ways in which companies amass, exploit, sell, share, and sell to data brokers, the most intimate information about our, when we have our periods and don't have our periods, who we're sleeping with, whether we orgasm, what adult videos we watch, forgive me, but this is like, you know, the kinds of things that we're sharing and browsing and reading, all of that intimate information, the privacy torts just don't capture, right? And in the United States, we treat intimate data, its collection and sale as a consumer protection matter, which basically means we can collect and share and sell so long as we don't lie about it, so long as we have some privacy policy hidden in some bottom of some web page, right? Which basically, as Woody Hartsock would say, are anti-privacy policies, then the, that's the reason why we're failing. We're failing ourselves, right? That without comprehensive data protection, without treating intimate privacy as a civil right, which means that we would treat it with, as if we're the caretakers of it individuals, companies, governments, right? That we've almost let technology run amok and we have not brought the discipline. The lessons of Warren and Brandeis have been lost. We almost need to bring them and re-understand them and reimagine them. And so that's why it's, it's not that we, we didn't have the tools to think about it. 
we actually had lots of the tools to think about intimate privacy and why it mattered for autonomy, identity, for self-respect, social respect, for love, for equality. We had the tools, right? But law hasn't hasn't developed in the way that it ought to. And I lay out a blueprint for how it should be protected. You maybe slightly apologized uh, or, or, you know, maybe there was a warning there about uh, content related to uh, pornography or, or, or sexual detail. But in the book, I mean, you go into some detail about yes. um, pornography as uh, advertising gold, intimate data as advertising gold, the data brokers that even specialize in our intimate life. And I was struck by uh, some stories that were, were novel to me, at least, uh, even of, of women you know, changing their dress um, as a result of the uh, invasion of, of kind of information snatchers uh, and uh, photographers, particularly you point out in China, um, but there are other examples as well. Yeah. So the, this, you know, I, for the book, I interviewed 60 people from the United States, the UK, Australia, Israel, India, and Iceland. So I got a kind of broad picture and I work really closely with the South Korean Digital Sex Crime Information Commissioner, as well as other government actors, including the UK Reform Commission on Intimate Image Abuse. And so the story is very much a global story, right? And misogyny is a thread that has cultural resonance, society versus society. So the ways in which, you know, when you go to a public bathroom in South Korea, it used to be that you'd have to bring a kit with you so that you'd fill in the holes in the bathroom and you'd wear a mask. This is before the pandemic. So you'd hide your face because it was hard. There were really no public bathrooms where there wouldn't, weren't hidden cameras that then would stream to the internet to sites that have very uncreative names like hidden cam or hidden camera. That that story of South Korea, and they called it Mulka, kind of a jokey term for hidden camera um, before they changed the way they understood and described it. That story is the same story of Singapore. The upskirt down blouse phenomenon, sextortion, the you know video voyeurism and non-consensual taping and posting um, to the internet, all different kinds of intimate privacy violations are bread and butter ch- uh, Japan. The term dick pick is often the term that we use in J- Japanese for the subway, right? That is it's so common to receive an unwanted dick pic on the subway in Japan that that's we, we refer to the term subway as dick pic. Like, where are you going? Dick pic. What you mean is the subway, right? It is the same story of the United States. It is the same story of Iceland. It's the same story of of India and Israel. So in talking to so many women and the the folks that I interviewed were were predominantly female. They were predominantly sexual and gender minorities. When I talked to men, they were often gay men. I interviewed women of color. Do you know what I'm saying? Like from all these different parts of the world and the stories that resonate. So may I, Justin, describe... Uh, an experience, because I think it's really helpful to describe an experience that honestly will stand in for so many that I think can help our listeners, you know, and the folks engaged in our world and tech policy press, like understand, if you don't mind, I'm going to just, okay. So Joan, and that's not her real name. It's a name that I'm going to, she chose for herself for this story. Joan was a recent graduate of law school and she was practicing at a firm and traveled uh, for work. And when she she had stayed in a hotel, when she returned, she received an email from someone who the email sender's name was not a bad guy to. And the email had a link to a video and it said, watch, and I won't share this with anyone else if you share more nudes with me in 24 hours. So she watches it and it's a video of her from the hotel showering and going to urinating, like going to the restroom. And it's posted on Pornhub and embedded in the video is her full name. So she calls her favorite professor at law school, who's one of my favorite people who calls me. I call Joan. I say, Joan, you're not sending him. This is what we call an attempt at sextortion. I mean, she knew she wasn't going to send him anything, but she was so rattled. And I said, let's figure out what happens in 24 hours. Let's see what happens. I've, I've been through this movie before. Sometimes they do follow up on threats and sometimes they don't. So let's see. So in 24 hours, person made good on the threats, sent, um, had mined all of her LinkedIn contacts and sent the video from a spoofed account that looked like it came from Joan to, and it covered because her LinkedIn contacts had her law school colleagues and her law firm colleagues 
right? Her partners, her associates, people she was working with. And in the video that looked like it came from her, it was something like, watch this, see me, this is my favorite state of being or something, right? And, you know, the next day she had to go talk to her partner, you know, the people she was working with at the firm to say, I'm so sorry, that wasn't me, right? And as she explained to me that, you know, the way she saw in her own eyes, a vision of herself was that she knew they saw her naked, like that she would never be Joan, fully integrated, beautiful self. She would always just be her breasts and vagina. You know what I'm saying? Like that, she couldn't shake that feeling. And not only did the person send it to kind of all of her LinkedIn contacts to the extent that the person could find email addresses, also then seated on countless, countless adult sites. And adult finder sites where the person said Joan's full name and that she was had anonymous sex, you know, she was interested in anonymous sex and had rape fantasies and come find her. And so she then was inundated with texts and emails. And she asked Pornhub to take the video down. And every time this happened three times, they would they would take it down and then it would go back up. And not a bad good guy too would write and say, I see you, bitch. Like send me more videos. They're gonna keep coming up if you don't. And he kept putting them up. And at some point, Pornhub just didn't return her emails. Now, most of the other sites, there were hundreds of other sites, she and her then fiance, and they, and I'll explain the sort of story of this lovely human being who is her partner, tried to contact all of these sites. Most do not respond because Section 230 of the Decency Act means that they don't have to respond. You know, uh, she doesn't own the copyright in the photos and the uh, they're otherwise immune from responsibility. And so no one responds except one site hosted, she figures out in Russia, and the person said, I'll take down the videos if you send me more nudes. So, you know, what's the fallout, right? The fallout is Joan had wanted, thought to, said to me, how do I ever move jobs? I live on a knife's edge. Like I could de-index it in Google searches of my name, but he keeps putting them up. We assume it's a he because it's more often a he, right? Just in our studies, as we know from CCRI research. So it's like almost inescapable. And what she has the experience of so many victims which is she completely changes how she looks. And either for a lot of victims, it's gaining lots of weight or it's losing lots of weight. And she drastically lost weight. So she went to CrossFit every night after work at 10 p.m., whatever time she was able to finish work. And she would work out like a fiend. And she also had to have friends walk her to and fro or her partner to and fro the, her apartment because she's so terrified of who would recognize her on the street. And she also, and this resonates with so many victims' experiences, she got a tattoo. And she told, you know, her explanation to me was like, and it was of her grandmother's name. And she said, I, this is my body now. It's not this person's, right? And so, you know, it it unnerved her. Her sense of safety was like thrown. She almost had, she had PTSD. Like every time her phone would be wonky, she, she would text me with sheer terror to say, he's back. And I would say, just hold on. Like, you know what I mean? It was, it dogged her. She Googled herself all the time, right? Um, they put off their their wedding for three years because she said, I can't have a wedding with people having seen that video, right? So she had this amazingly wonderful partner, but, you know, Joan's experience is so many people's experience. Like it, it, it speaks to us for all the ways that she shut down all of her social media accounts. She was totally silenced, right? Like bye-bye LinkedIn, bye-bye Facebook, where she hung out with all of her high school friends. Like she cut off all contact. There's another example in the book you give of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, uh, who of course were uh, kind of, I guess, characters that emerged onto the stage in sort of the political discourse around the uh, investigation into Russian interference and the 2016 election. And, you know, this is kind of a window into, I don't know, the inadequacy of, of any redress. Later in the book, you bring up, of course, the example of, of Pamela Anderson Lee, Brett Michaels. Uh, there are other examples sort of, you know, sprinkled in of similar types of uh, circumstances and in individuals who've had to deal with these types of things. And what I think is really important about um, Pete Strzok and Lisa Page's experiences that when you face privacy invasions at the hands of the government, right, the Department of Justice calling in reporters 
in the thick of the night, you know, after 8 p.m., Pamela Flores, Isker Flores, the DOJ spokesperson, to say, come look at text messages sent between two FBI, uh, really the best counterintelligence official in the country, Pete Strzok, and Lisa Page, counsel to the GC of the FBI, Andy McCabe, and say, come look at their text messages. They're inappropriate. They were having an affair. Um, and these text messages, these 375 text messages, which you can only look at, you can't take with you, right? You can't replicate, um, show that they were having an affair and that they disparaged the president. The next day, there was it was really within hours, splashed over every page. And the president seized on those stories and then defined Page and struck as traitorous FBI lovers. They were traitors. They were tweet after tweet after tweet. Their private text messages, which should have only, they were meant for each other. They're really about work, but but they also were about their family and their lives and and some about their relationship and their political feelings. And the FBI has a policy is you can have political views and you can say them publicly and privately. They worked on both the email you know, the the Clinton email investigation as well as Crossfire Hurricane, which is the investigation into Trump's campaign's ties to Russia, right? And so that's why Trump and the Department of Justice sort of make their love relationship and their text messages fodder for the internet and ultimately change the arc of both of their lives, right? Lisa can no longer be an FBI. She resigns. She can no longer work for the government, which was her love. She was a government lawyer through and through. Pete Strzok was the country's, by all accounts, best counterintelligence agents of the country and stop. He's fired, right? Clearly it's all political nonsense. And so the destruction at the hands of private actors, it's very hard to shake that imprimatur, right? So if you search either one of them now, it is pages and pages of conversations of them as, as FBI, you know, as traitorous to the government. And still to this day, if you listen to Fox News, Pete Strzok is constantly discussed. Same with Lisa Page. So I just should note for the readers that I am the pro bono expert for both Page and Strzok in their Privacy Act lawsuit against the Department of Justice. So um, I say that in the book, I, <laughs> I, I just want to make clear that, and it's true for so many of the victims that I talk to in this book, that I, I'm on their side, right? I, their experience is one that I see their harm so vividly. Right. And so just want to make clear that I am their expert, a pro bono expert in their case, you know, two separate cases, Privacy Act cases against the Department of Justice that violated by my lights, the Privacy Act. And I'm an expert on harm, but, you know, the Privacy Act commits the government to keeping our files confidential with some narrow exceptions, including routine use. But it ain't no routine use to tell to tell reporters at night. Right. And disclose text messages, you needed to get their permission. And so, you know, the kinds of abuses that we see individuals engage in, like Joan and the hotel employee, and we see it with government actors. And when there's a government actor like Trump and the Department of Justice, that imprimatur is unshakable, right? Rana Ayub experienced it with the Modi government, with deep fake sex video that spread all over the internet. And as you said, Pamela Anderson Lee, you know, and Brett Michaels, their sex video was exploited by a manager and then monetized, right, by by a corporate actor, right? So companies, governments, individuals are privacy violators, and law lets them get away with a lot of it. So let's talk about the law's inadequacy. Um, you've already focused in on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. You've talked about in the book, of course, how uh, the sort of judiciary's interpretation of 230 doesn't square with perhaps the original intent of the lawmakers that drafted it and passed it. And in the present day, um, I suppose, you know, after your book had already gone to print, uh, we now see cases before the Supreme Court that uh, may have some bearing on this question. You say we're at a kind of pivotal moment. Where are we at at the moment on the law? So let's take at the content layer, the sites that traffic and abuse, there are like 9,500 websites devoted to intimate image abuse. And let's just take any ordinary website, you know, like whether it's, whether it's, you know, Facebook, Twitter, um, et cetera, right? They are, so section 230 affords them and, and the title, the relevant part of the statute that we're going to talk about, it says good Samaritan blocking and filtering of offensive content. 
right? So the idea, what's behind Cox and White, Whiten's um, inspiration, and, and they wanted to ensure that interactive computer services, the term they used, right, would be able to moderate content because they knew federal agencies couldn't remotely keep up with what was going on online, especially the early years of like message boards, Prodigy, AOL. They were like, we want incentive, provide an incentive for them to be able to moderate, to either leave up or take down content, but to endeavor to do that, right? And to give them a give them a, a an ability, a legal shield, so they could take down offensive content. Those are the words of the statute, not mine. And the loss, you said, Justin, where is the law now, right? The law has been interpreted so broadly so that even sites that solicit, encourage, and keep up clear, intimate privacy violations that profit from it, they also enjoy the immunity from responsibility. So sites like Texan.com, so with triple X in it, uh, the dirty.com, sites that traffic in gossip, as well as intimate privacy violations, they get to enjoy the immunity as well. So we're at this moment, right, where we've seen some courts sort of try to cabin that very overbroad interpretation of Section 230, which also at the time immunized Backpage, even though Backpage was like making it, they were structuring the architecture of the site so that cops would have a very difficult time finding that minors are being trafficked, making invisible words like, um, child, you know, teen, things like that. Even if their architecture was so changed by the site, they were also immune from responsibility for se- child sex trafficking. So we had some changes in the law on FOST and SESTA, you know, but as it stands, it's really still broadly interpreted. Courts have tried to ratchet it back a little bit, right? There's like a some findings about products liability claims that are now being permitted to proceed, like in some a case involving Snapchat. And there's also this like smaller split in the circuits about whether algorithmic moderation and recommendation systems that make money, whether they also enjoy, that is the the act of recommending content, whether that is going to enjoy the legal shield. And the case, as you said, like things are changing. (laughs) Supreme Court, since the book went to press, granted cert on Gonzalez versus Google, which is, it's a twin case. It's a case against Twitter as well as as YouTube um, for promoting terrorist videos by families of people who are killed in terrorist attacks in Israel. There's a stat, so it's like two issues. One, Section 231 involves the the Anti-Terrorism Act, which um, has civil penalties for facilitating and providing aid, including information about like promoting terrorist organizations. Okay, so I'm not in love with this case. I think, why take this one, <laughs> right? You know, believe it or not, Justice Thomas was so right in his dissent in the Malwarebytes case. He dissents from a denial of cert where he says Section 230C1 has been interpreted in such an overbroad fashion as to retreat from its original purpose. And I'm with him, but this is not the case, <laughs> right? That is what I worry is that if indeed, I'm not sure they're going to decide it on 230 grounds. Maybe it's just this terror, you know, like who knows how this is going to shake out. But if indeed the court finds that anytime we algorithmically amplify content for profit in some manner related to profit, that that is then we're taking out second 230 immunity. I think that just means 230 is gone because the entire internet is algorithmically moderated right? Like my spell check is, (laughs) right? Search engines, everything is. So I don't know how, I don't know how that doesn't mean we disassemble 230. And I am not one of those people who wants to get rid of it. I want it, keep it, but exclude bad actors like sites that encourage, solicit, or keep up intimate privacy violations. They just, they're bad Samaritans, they're out. And I think sites, when faced with intimate privacy violations, have a duty of care and Congress can prescribe that duty of care. As I have a new article called How to Fix Section 230 that like goes ahead and tells Congress how to do it. I don't want to get rid of 230. It's given us a lot of great things. But I also think it needs to go back to its original purpose of immunizing the Good Samaritan and particularly for problems we know about, like intimate privacy violations that are costly to civil rights and civil liberties. 230 is not the only 
right. you know, opportunity to address these things. You know, you have a, a chapter on um, the removal of various other legal barriers um, and other forms of redress. Um, perhaps we could take a quick tour of those. I'd love that because, you know, when you ask about 230, 230 is, I think, an important example of when we shift to thinking about intimate privacy as a civil right, what that means is that civil rights are legal rights that each and every one of us enjoys because they're essential for human flourishing and civic engagement and citizenship. It is crucially, the modern civil rights laws crucially include protections against discrimination. But the earliest understanding of civil rights was like a right that we all enjoy to work for education. We all enjoy a right to intimate privacy. And it gives us two things by viewing it as a civil right, practical and expressive, right? So the practical piece is when you call something a civil right, it means you can't violate it or trade it away for it without a good reason. Profits ain't good enough because it's fun, you know, individuals, it ain't good enough. You need a really good reason. And it also means when, when you're the, when you're the steward of intimate data, when you, when you collect intimate data, whether as a site operator, an individual, a business, a government, when you consider something a civil right, it means you're the caretaker of that right. That is, you have responsibilities as the guardians of those rights, right? So For companies, if you're the guardian of intimate data, that means sometimes you can't collect it. If you don't necessarily need it, strictly speaking, for your product or service, you don't collect it. And a civil right to intimate privacy for businesses would also mean you've got duties of loyalty. And as I rely on Woody Herzog and Neil Richards' work, we have duties of care and duties of non-discrimination. And this is without question an end stop. You can't sell it. You cannot sell intimate privacy. I don't care, <laughs> right? You want to sell your intimate data? Go do it to, you can go do it to a first party, but that party cannot sell it to a third party. I don't care what you've so indicated, right? So there's practical value in making the shift to civil rights. That has implications for government collecting our intimate data, for companies and for individuals, right? But there's also a really important expressive payoff, Right. Because law, you know, is our teacher. It's a blunt instrument, but it is our guide. It's, it can become and should become the law within us, right? And once that happens, it says to victims, you matter. That your intimate privacy is of paramount importance. We're not going to abandon you. Law enforcement isn't going to say, turn your computer off, boys will be boys. They'll know it's a civil right that, that is sacred and they have sacred duties of care and of guardianship. And it says to companies, you can't hand over fist collect intimate data. You have responsibilities. You're the stewards. And it tells them when they design their tools and services that the beta test mindset is out, right? Like we have this ethos in Silicon Valley, which is build it, we'll deal with harm later. Like we just build it. It's a builder's mentality and we don't care what happens. Now, that's not how we really build things in the real world, right? But Silicon Valley seems to think that's how we do it. And that would end. That would have to end. The lesson would be, you have to realize that what you're doing is building something that's ultra hazardous, really, really, really valuable, but really dangerous. And you are the stewards of people's intimate data. So it would would flip how we view all of this. You say you want these companies to become data guardians, in fact. And, you know, I was struck by the distinction you make between the kind of the original sort of cyber libertarian uh, ideologies of Silicon Valley uh, versus where we've ended up today, which is, of course, a very, very (laughs) different place. Even though some of the individuals that run these companies, invest in these companies, continue to somehow believe that they're still, I don't know, pursuing those utopian goals um, while at the same time, they've, you know, obviously made themselves very, very wealthy (laughs) doing some very different (laughs) sorts of things. It's what's interesting though, is that it's privacy for me, but not for thee, right? So um, went to Zuckerberg's house for dinner. He had a series of dinners and he would have the head of Safety, who I work really closely with, Monica Bickert, and and a few other academics. Like I, I'm, I think he had a few of these, but I sat next to him around a small table. And when you get to his house, you can't see it. You the car drops you off 
or this is his former house, which I think he's recently sold and now he lives somewhere else. But in his house that he lived in in 2000, I guess this was 16 or 17 when I went, it was like just a hedge. So you didn't know it was a house. It was this huge hedge and you get dropped off. And I was standing there with Sarah Roberts and we looked at each other and we were like, where's the house? (laughs) And a hedge opens. And we see them as it's actually quite lovely, normal house. It wasn't a mansion or anything. God bless. You know, like, it was a beautiful, lovely house. But he had bought the property around the houses next to him so that the house is completely obscure. You cannot, you don't know it's a house. It's like a forest, right? So he's happy to claim privacy for himself, but not for other people. So I actually just find the whole thing so twisted, you know, like buying an island in Hawaii, (laughs) right? Like the idea that these folks, they don't allow, I mean, this is by stories you read in Wired, you know, by all accounts, so many Facebook employees don't allow their own um, kids to be anywhere near screens because I forgot the name of the fellow who, who shared this with us, but you know that because it's so addictive and because it can be so confidence undermining, right? And I know, cause I've got, two 20 year old women in my family, you know, like we talked long and hard before they got on Facebook when they were, and they waited till they were 14. Cause I said, like, it's a big responsibility and you got to feel okay about yourself because there's a whole lot of ways in which you feel crappy, (laughs) right? Like seeing other people's being so beautiful and you're just a normal and perfect person, right? So it's amazing though. They'll carve out privacy for themselves, these ultra wealthy folks, but will exploit us. As Shoshana Zuboff would say, we're the extractive raw material, right? Her wonderful book on surveillance capitalism. You know, I feel like Justin, when I wrote this book, I built it on the shoulders of lots of amazing scholars. And that's Anita Allen and Shoshana Zuboff and Julie Cohen and Woody Hartzog and Neil Richards and Ari Waldman. I could go on and on, but you know, anytime one writes, you know, you are, we write together in the privacy field, right? We, we are a shared effort. Uh, So I always want to like shout out Michelle Goodwin, you know, like think about all the people, Terry, um, you know, there are folks who have really taught me so much, Kara Bridges, Simone Brown, that I tried to integrate, you know what I'm saying? Like capture their insights. So important. And of course, Dr. Marianne Franks, who's like my partner. And as we joke, we're best friends, but we're partners in deterring crime. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about uh, Dr. Franks um, and just one of the thing I should ask you about on the legal uh, landscape, which is the First Amendment, which of course is yes. uh, incredibly important in this book and, and something you come back to uh, again and again around how various interventions perhaps can survive uh, scrutiny, as you say. Yes, yes. So, okay. So it's, it's you know, as we think about the challenge of regulating intimate privacy violations vis-a-vis individuals, right? So often the like intrusions on seclusion, like you don't have to write, you don't have a right to tape me in my bathroom, right? It's often a less concerning First Amendment problem. But where the difficulties, of course, are where the intersection between intimate privacy and disclosure, public disclosure of private facts, right? And, you know, if you write these laws narrowly enough where what we're doing is criminalizing or providing civil penalties to information that's shared in confidence or in circumstances where you deserve a right to privacy, right, whether it's sex videos, social security numbers, biometric information, the Privacy Act has criminal penalties, HIPAA has criminal penalties, right? What makes your nude body so different? And ACLU makes this argument that we shouldn't have facial recognition software, we shouldn't record people, people's faces in public. And I told him with them. But so they argue my vagina should be. <laughs> a photo of me taken naked is the most absurd argument ever. But we have in the, you know, in the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, we, we've defended um, and filed amicus uh, briefs in defense of laws that criminalize the practice because we wrote them so, help, you know, Marianne helped write them so narrowly and so astutely. They've been upheld. They've gone through the crucible of strict scrutiny and survived. Right. So, yes, we are limited in what we can do. But if you think about the values that underlie free expression, autonomy, self-governance, figuring out who we are, the world we want to live in, the kind of 
counter speech ideas, you know, like we meet falsehoods with truths and let it, you know, kind of let, let it all bubble to the top, but at least give us that opportunity to blow off steam, you know, like all the different sort of reasons why we care about free speech. There's really no response to a nude photo. What am I going to say? That's not my nude body. And in fact, that's my coerced sexual expression. And, you know, to think about the corporate recommendations that I make, right, around um, less collection, no sale, right, we can adopt those regulations narrow enough so that an anti-discrimination commitments, so long as, you know, we do it with care, we absolutely can do it consistently with First Amendment case law because it frees us to speak. You know, I have a piece coming out in the Journal of Free Speech Law called, you know, Intimate Privacy is a precondition to free speech. And that's just what it is. They go hand in hand, intimate privacy and free speech. I can't sexually express myself unless I think people are going to keep my images confidential or my communications and texts confidential. And that includes the companies that are faring and storing my messages. You are in some ways pushing for a kind of cultural change here. Um, it's not just legal. It's not just the practices of companies. It's not just perhaps fiddling with this law or that. You know, you want to sort of create a, a different kind of context. I was struck by the example you gave of Congressman Matt Gates showing nude photos on the floor of the House, uh, you know, in Congress in the kind of you know, lack of pushback from his colleagues that kind of speaks to what norms are, even in what many Americans, I suppose, would regard as a hallowed place. How how do we get from here to there? Uh, You know, you say we've made a lot of progress in the last decade, um, but how far do we have to go? No, it's true, right? We do. And we've made some progress. We've made some progress in South Korea. We've made some progress, in, you know, thanks to A.G. Harris, you know, when she was the attorney general in California, made some progress in the U.K. We've seen progress. Right. But our problem fundamentally are cultural and social attitudes, which is that my vagina is not mine. Right. That is the bodies of women and sexual gender minorities and non-whites are stigmatized and not their own. Right. And that has to change. And it changes kind of with each and every one of us, right? Like for for Representative Gates, this that wonderful Alexandra Petri piece, when she talked about it in the Washington Post, said like, why didn't people say, what are you doing? You vile beast. That's like someone, that's first of all, someone young, because we know he slept with young women, young meaning teenage women, it's been alleged. But let's say it's people are of age. What are you doing sharing nude photos of women that you've slept with? What are you, five years old? You you, you have no self-discipline or care or humanity? And people didn't do that. And so we need to teach old, young, everybody, right? About respect for one another. We need to bring humanity into the calculus. We need to talk about why intimate privacy is so important and cherished, why we shouldn't shame other people for sport. And that's a long... You know, like I, uh, there's some things about privacy that aren't necessarily shared culturally. The themes of intimate privacy are pretty resonant around the globe. And also it's violation, right? Because of gender norms and invidious attitudes about the other. And so we have a long way to go, right? I, I used to think like in 2014, I thought, oh, we, we really change and stuff. You know, we had this task force with A.G. Harris. We were changing the way companies like Google de-index made a decision and Bing and to de-index intimate images and people's searches of people's names. That was big, you know, like here we were. And then 2015 and the Trump campaign happens and hate is normalized on platforms. And rush of disinformation is the game of 2007 and eight, you know, the disinformation vis-a-vis Estonia and Georgia and shutting down websites. It's not like a new thing, disinformation. Intimate compromise is how Putin is in power, right? He released a sex tape, which was fake, of the prosecutor who was going after Yeltsin's family for fraud. And so Yeltsin was like, okay, you're my you're my successor. So intimate compromise and intimate privacy violations are nothing new, but we've got a, this, I thought we were making all this progress. And then all of a sudden hate speech and hateful bigotry becomes really normalized. So normalized that in my town now, and I wasn't here yet, but in 2017, you know, August, I think it's 17, the streets of Charlottesville, like three blocks from my house where Jews will not replace us. 
right? And people who were no masks, no hoods, this is like no hiding, white shirts, khakis, full out, like I'm here and marching the streets of Charlottesville with but whatever, I forgot what they're called, the tiki torches, right? Proud. So I guess we have a long way to go. And what's really fascinating is, you know, my first book was about cyber stalking. And I watched kind of the incel and men's rights movement evolve. Like as I'm studying and writing about for cyber civil rights, I wrote it in 2008. I'm writing about ways in which like women and girls and minorities being targeted online by these like weird niche websites like 4chan, auto admit, those folks become a movement, the men's rights movement and incels. And they then become vast. Like, and they are, it's the same actors. Like the wacky thing is that the actors who were tormenting Kathy Sierra, this is my first book, computer programmer, this guy Weave, Andrew Arhammer, he's like, you know, goes after this woman writing about how programming is creative. <laughs> Can you imagine like, how dare she, you know, like spreading her social security number and, and, and defaming her and saying that she's a prostitute and death and rape threats, right? And that dude was now the head of Daily Stormer with Andrew Anglin. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so the actors that I'm I'm documenting of cyber mobs in 2009, they're kids, but they're like in their 20s, early 20s. They're tormenting people online and they say for fun because it's for the lulls, right? But they're tormenting people and they're doing it in bigoted ways. They grow up and become neo-Nazis and part of the far right in a political movement that leads to one six. So the thread lines are stunningly strong and more and stronger than they were when I first started writing about them. So I don't, I feel like last night I gave a talk at EVA law school and my students and they were like, I was like, yeah, I'm going to end with just some dystopia. Sadly, like, <laughs> like anytime I give a talk, I'm going to be like, all right, I'm going to depress us for a little bit. Like I'll try to inspire us, but we got a lot of work. You're right. Justin, we have a lot of work to do. Well, if uh, we're to get there, I assume that uh, books like yours will be a blueprint uh, for the type of cultural change that we've got to have, the type of legal change that we've got to have. Danielle, thank you so much for speaking to me about the book. And I encourage everybody to go out and take a read of it uh, at your local bookseller or whatever online source that you may use to get your eBooks. What's the next book? Are you already working on it or are you... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my golly. Not yet. You know, but I am, I have long been thinking about like sexual slander and the ways that women in particular as a national security problem, that is like lies and disinformation in particular that women and minorities, you know, are unfortunately another kind of huge area to combat. So, so that's, if I have a next book, maybe that's it. My agents asked me and I'm like, I'm not sure, but I tend to like write a lot of articles. And then if I can't stop writing about something, that's my book. You know what I mean? Like I love writing law review articles. So if I have like four or five articles, I keep going and keep expanding. That's when I know I have my next book. Well, I hope publication of the book won't be the only reason we have a chance to talk again. But oh, thank same. You, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and for all you do um, for Tech Policy Press. It's awesome. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Press.